You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. I thought I would uh, open by just explaining something. Um, in case you have never been here before, or if you've been here for a while and you've you've always wondered why we don't through go through a series or go through the Sundays and pick out topics or talk about particular uh, uh, doctrines that we may believe here at Redwood Christian Fellowship. Uh, we believe Scripture teaches that uh, you should go through the Scripture expositorily, meaning that we pick a book of the Bible and we go through the book verse to verse or section to section and address the various doctrines and, and uh, teachings that are given to us from the pages of Scripture as God gives them to us in in the series. So um, if you have lingering thoughts about what we may believe about a particular thing, we can get you a copy of our Statement of Faith, which goes through a lot of different issues. We actually did do a mini-series back at the end of last year, beginning of this year, and discussed a lot of those and taught on some, uh, some of them. But if you attend here for a, a long period of time, uh, there may be various doctrines that you just sort of wonder, why have we never spoken about that particular issue? And it, it's probably because we just have not hit it in that particular book uh, and just it hasn't fallen in. But we uh, we believe God uh, instructs us to teach this way, and that is how we have uh, chosen to, to follow his example. Um, when I was a teenager, which seems to be getting longer and longer ago, there was a renewed interest in the supernatural world at the time. I remember um, various movies, various things that were uh, being discussed, and including in the, in the church by Christians. Um, I think this is probably something that happens occasionally in, in, in Western society. I don't know if it does in Eastern society, since I'm not part of that. But uh, I would think that uh, knowing that there is a supernatural world around us brings up questions, brings up interest at times, sometimes uh, uh, not so good. But uh, I know as I've been getting older, that it comes up occasionally. Uh, interest in things such as poltergeists and demons and angels and seances, that type of thing, does come up occasionally. I remember in the, the church that I was attending at the time that I, uh, I actually lived with our pastor and his family right next to the church, so I had occasions to go over to the church at night to help clean or get things set up for the next day or for whatever reason I may have been in there. But I do remember being kind of spooked at times to go into church at night alone uh, being concerned that a demon might be lingering there doing whatever demons did. I just didn't want to be part of it, whatever that may have been. Not too many years ago, there even seemed to be uh, a, a renewed interest, if you will, in angels. 
my mother-in-law, uh, for a number of years it seems like, uh, loved collecting angels. Uh, I think there were several series and movies that uh, came out about angels trying to explain what they are and in Hollywood's way, trying to show how they interact with us. Um, a lot of that was hogwash, I hate to tell you. But uh, but there again is just that interest again in the supernatural world. People just want to try to understand it. They want to reach out to it. I'll be preaching uh, this morning on the authority of Jesus over demons. Uh, as we look at the text this morning, you can start turning to Matthew 8 and keep a thumb there. I want to try to help us all to have a, at least a basic understanding about demons in particular, since that's what my topic is on, or actually the authority of Jesus over demons, but dealing with demons. And I intend to show you from scriptures that they confirm that Jesus Christ has the authority over the supernatural world, including Satan and demons, and that there is no reason for a Christian to fear them as I did as a teenager. To assist us in understanding the text better, I wanted to provide a couple definitions first. According to the Vines Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words, a demon is a spiritual being hostile to God and men. A spiritual being that is unclean and immoral in nature and activities. Demon possession, which is something we will deal with in our text today, is to act under the control of a demon. Thus, who were thus, or those who were thus afflicted express the mind and conscience of the demon or demons indwelling in them. So that's just a couple definitions to have in mind as we look into our scriptures. Pastor of Grace Community Church and Christian writer John MacArthur, in one of his sermons on Jesus' authority over demons, said, and I quote, Demons operate in the world today to achieve the purposes of Satan and thwart the purposes of God. They are behind the world's complex system of evil and they are the dominating powers in the lives of all people who do not belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. The whole of humanity is in the grip of this force of evil spirits. They are real they are personal, and they are wicked. End quote. The New Testament tells us that everyone that is unconverted, that is not a believer in Jesus Christ and a follower of Christ, are the children of the devil. You can see that in John chapter 8. And the whole world of humanity lies in the lap of the evil one. First John chapter 5. Satan is the one who binds the minds of the unconverted so they cannot understand the gospel. MacArthur continued, quote, You look at the world and you see its evil. You are seeing the result, or I'm sorry, I skipped ahead there. Uh, when you see the depth and height and length and breadth of the evil in the world, 
you are seeing the result of not only human depravity, which we have to remember, we, as, a, as a human here today, we have our own human depravity. It's not always possible for you to say, the devil made me do it. Your human depravity has the ability to sin and do things that displease God and does. So not everything is because of Satan and the demons. It's because of our, our human depravity. You are seeing the result not only of human depravity, which produces its own evil, but the compounded result of a complex system of wickedness being pervaded by millions of supernatural demons. They would like to stop God's purpose of redeeming sinners. And they would like to hold all sinners for themselves who are already in their kingdom, end quote. I thought that was a pretty good summary. Satan's goal, his desire, his ambition, his work is to try to keep unbelievers from becoming believers and to disrupt believers as much as he can. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. So with this, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 8. I'll be reading from the 28th verse. And when he came to the other side, the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This event, this incident that took place here, it's also documented in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8, Mark having the longest version of the story, and this text in Matthew having the shortest. The main difference between the three stories in these three Gospels is that while Matthew identifies two demon-possessed men in the story, Mark and Luke only discuss one. I'll be using the other two texts, though, along with Matthew today, to help us get a fuller picture on what's going on and help us to understand this particular passage. One of the tools that we encourage and, and, and bring up uh, as often as we think of doing that is when you are reading Scripture and trying to interpret Scripture, Scripture is the best way to interpret Scripture as you look into what's being said on various issues and topics. You can decide on what something means or what possibly what it 
can't mean because somewhere else it says something plainer. Um, so we'll use all three texts today. But what a bizarre and fascinating story that we have in this book. There are three things that would have been immediately shocking to a first century Jew if they would have witnessed this or heard this story from reading Matthew or however they may have come up with this, with the incident. First of all, that Jesus intentionally went to a Gentile area. An Orthodox Jew just would not have done that unless there was a really good reason. And, and it would have caused them problems religiously even then. Secondly, that he went to a cemetery. A, a Jew, an Orthodox Jew would, you know, the cemetery is where dead bodies are, and dead bodies are uh, unclean. So they would have not gone to a cemetery if they could have avoided it. And lastly, that he had dealings with two demon-possessed men. Remember in BJ's sermon last week that Jesus and his disciples had entered a boat and were crossing the Lake of Galilee. Through the events of BJ's sermon, we found that Jesus had authority over nature. That in his instance, in the story that he shared, Jesus spoke and the wind was stilled and the sea lay flat. When we last left the disciples, they were asking each other, what sort of, sort of man is this that even winds and water obey him? And then they came to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, and this incident takes place. As if life can't get more confusing and amazing. Imagine what is going on in the minds of the disciples. All three of these things that I just brought up are all unclean, first of all, for Jews. And they're all Jews also. So they're, they're, they're going through that in their mind in the sense of coming to a cemetery, dealing with demon-possessed people, and going to a Gentile area. They're going with Jesus. So they have to kind of struggle with this also. Because it has the effect in, under Old Testament law of making someone unclean. Keep in mind that in Matthew's Gospel, the Holy Spirit is presenting the proofs that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. This is Matthew's purpose in writing this book. God is determined to redeem the earth, men, and the universe from the curse of sin. In order to accomplish this, he came into the world in the form of the Messiah. And he has redeemed man to himself. So Matthew is concerned that the reader understands that Jesus Christ is the King. That he is the Messiah, the rightful ruler of the world the King of the earth, the Son of God, God in flesh, God incarnate, the second member of the Trinity. In other words, it is the deity that we are to see. 
No, actually it's the deity that we must see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's who He is. In the future, Jesus will return to redeem the earth and the universe to Himself. You can read some of those details in Revelation, among other references, but that's a uh, a pretty detailed summary of the events that will take place in the future when Jesus returns. So there is a supernatural world that is operating around us all the time. You don't always see it. You don't always know what's going on. But if you will, behind the scenes, there's a lot of things taking place between good and evil. In fact, the Old and New Testaments both teach or make references to the reality of Satan and his demons. They are not figures of make-believe. They're not comics that have been developed like Marvel has done with various figures. They are real. There is a Satan, and he has fallen angels that are called demons who serve and assist him in waging war on believers. They're accusing and slandering believers before God. They're undermining confidence in the word of God. They tempt believers to sin. They hinder Christian ministry. They infiltrate the church with false teachers and doctrine and promote division among the saints of God. Satan and his demons are constantly at work to make us unaffected as Christians. But they're also at work in the unbeliever and with unbelievers where they snatch away the gospel and they blind their minds to the gospel. They promote false religion and ingrain a sinful lifestyle. If, if they can distract an unbeliever from learning the truth in the gospel, but make them think that they are religious and they understand religion and they, they have a future, then he's been successful because that person does not know the true God and his son, Jesus Christ. Their purpose and goal is to keep unbelievers from believing and so weaken a Christian that they are ineffective. He doesn't have to try to snatch you away, which he can't. He doesn't have to do anything but make you feel guilty by encouraging you to sin or making you feel bad about yourself in some way, if he can keep you from being involved in ministry and studying his word and following Christ the way you should be, then Satan has been successful in what he was trying to do. It doesn't affect your salvation, but it does affect how you are looking at God as your Lord and Savior and and following Him. So there is no doubt that there is a supernatural world around us that is engaged in good and bad. For Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, He must have the power over the unseen forces of the supernatural world, the demon host. If the Lord Jesus 
Christ is to be is to redeem the earth. If he's to reverse the curse that we have on us. If he's to take possession of fallen humanity, it must be that he can overpower that which holds all of this in its control right now. And that's Satan and his demons. Satan is called the ruler or prince of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Jesus must be able to break the power of the supernatural world. Therefore, repeatedly throughout the gospel record, we find occasions where the writers give us examples of Jesus' ability to cast out demons. We get the proof from today's text and others that he can conquer and deal with the kingdom of darkness. The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That was his purpose. Jesus has accomplished the redemption of man and he will redeem the earth and universe when he returns. So let's look a little closer at our passage, starting at verse 28. Jesus and the disciples landed in the region of the Gadarenes which is the area of the Decapolis, if you have any history from uh, ancient days in your uh, past teachings. Uh, The Decapolis was a federation of ten Greek cities in eastern Palestine, located on the eastern and southeastern shore of the Lake of Galilee. The area is predominantly Gentile, having been occupied by the Greeks in about 200 B.C., As the boat is beached, two demon-possessed men run out to Jesus from the tombs. The accounts in Mark and Luke both describe only one demon-possessed man, but not that we need to try to justify it, but maybe one of the reasons that happens is there was a prominent person out of the two that the other two writers may have been referring to, where Matthew is referring to both. And actually, Mark and Luke don't say that there was only one. He just addresses that there is a demon-possessed man coming out. The writers are documenting a particular message to a particular audience, and we, uh, we may not get exactly the same in some of the stories that we have. But Matthew tells us that there are two men who were living among the tombs in a cemetery. The burial caves would have had a, a antechamber in the front of it, and then the bodies would have been placed back in the back of a cave, and more than likely they are living in that antechamber area. It was believed at this time that this was written that Graves were associated with the world of demons and unclean spirits. In fact, their belief and suspicions has probably continued on through history to our present day, and that explains why we get the heebie-jeebies when we uh, go to graveyards, especially on a moonless night. These demon-possessed men were described as so fierce 
that no one would have passed near that particular graveyard out of fear for them. They were so violent that the people living in the neighboring area avoided the vicinity altogether. Mark 5 describes a man who no one could subdue, not even with chains on his hands and feet. He would, he would eventually end up breaking out of them. And he would shriek wildly at night and cut himself with sharp stones. One commentary I was using concluded that this confirms that it is a demon possession and not mere sickness or insanity, but a desperate satanic attempt to distort and destroy God's image of man. And I would agree. And I probably would have stayed a long ways from that cemetery also. They cried out to Jesus in verse 29. They were shouting at him, and they asked him a very interesting question. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Matthew version makes it seem that Jesus is addressing the demons, not specifically the men. He's speaking to the demons inside the men. The demons were speaking to him, presumably using the men's lips. First of all, they called him by his name and title. These are demons that are calling Jesus by his name and title. Satan and the demons know who Jesus Christ is. In Mark 5, he identified Jesus as Jesus, Son of the Most High God. There are people I've met that don't know that or may have never heard of Jesus, but demons know who he is. We learn from the New Testament that demons have spiritual insight. Not only do they recognize the deity of Jesus, but they also know that there is a divinely appointed time for their judgment and that Jesus is their judge. James wrote in James 2.19 while addressing the Jewish Christians spread throughout the known world that a person must have more than just a belief that God exists. For even demons believe, and they shudder. The demons who possess these men know who Jesus is, and they're afraid. We also need to know who Jesus is. You can't just call him the Son of God and think that that is enough, because it isn't. For one to be a child of God, he or she must do as Peter preached in Acts to the, to, uh, in Jerusalem during the day of Pentecost where he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Faith is more than belief. By faith you accept what Jesus has done for you. You receive him as the only one who can save you from your sins and live out your faith by obeying his commands. It's not only about head knowledge. If this doesn't 
reflect your life and what you're doing or more importantly if if this does reflect your life and friend you have a problem it's not enough for you to say you believe in Jesus or that you believe there's a God but you're not willing to accept him and live for him Questions they asked, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The demons also know that they are destined to eternal judgment. They know there is an end. They understand that they have a very limited time to do their work, to torment and tempt humans. And that the arrival of Jesus will signal the beginning of the end. And now here he is. They know that when Jesus returns, that he will bind Satan and his demons and they'll be cast into the lake of fire forever. Revelations 20. The demons and Satan knows it better than some of us do. And again, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, that is exactly the same punishment that you face. The demons know and there's nothing that they can do about it. But you still have time, old sinner. Come to Jesus. That's the only way to avoid eternal punishment. Mark and Luke both state that Jesus asked the demon his name and it responded, Legion, for we are many. The word legion is a Latin term that would be common to Jews and Greeks of the time, expressing a Roman military unit of 6,000 men. It's amazing to me that a person, or even in this case two persons, could be possessed by so many demons at one time. We figure at least 2,000 and possibly as many as 6,000. That's an amazing thought. But in our account in Matthew verse 30, we get a glimpse of of a number. It describes that nearby there was a large herd of pigs that's some distance away. The account in Mark numbers them at 2,000. I remember as I was reading this, a news article that I'd seen not long ago about large fog, uh, uh, hog farms that were in the Midwest and neighbors all around them had been complaining about the smell. Yeah, lovely. Imagine being that neighbor. This sighting helps us to also identify the area as Gentile. Because a Jewish person would never be around or raise or have anything to do with swine. That's one reason why we believe that this is probably Gentiles that Jesus is addressing and dealing with today. The spokesdemon, whoever it was that was appointed to reply to Jesus, begged Jesus not to cast them into hell at that moment, but instead to send them away into the herd of pigs. 
In verse 31, when the demon says, if you cast us out, this can also be translated, since you are going to cast us out. The demons knew that they were going to be cast out. That Jesus was going to act. Another truth that we can gain from this story is that demons can only be in one place at one time. Demons and angels, for that matter, are not omnipresent. They can only be in one place at a time. Apparently, they can have a lot in the same area, but they can only be in one place at one time. They also seem to need or prefer to inhabit a physical body. I don't know if that's just an observation or if that's fact. But they, um, they were asking to be moved from one physical body to another. There was a purpose behind that. They recognize that Jesus has the authority and power to send them where he desires and ultimately that he will judge and punish them forever. They know that he has authority over them. That's why he's addre- they're addressing him this way and pleading. You know, instead of sending us into the abyss, what about sending us into those hogs over there? Satan and his demons know that they are limited by the sovereign authority of God. With a single word, go. Jesus issues a command, and they must obey. Jesus Christ defeated over 2,000 demons with just a word. That's how powerful of a Savior we have. Just as he was able to calm the sea and calm the wind in the last story from last week. With just a word. They immediately leave the men and occupy the herd of pigs, which then rush down a steep bank and fall into the sea where the whole herd is drowned. Now there is a question if this resulted in both the pigs and the demons being destroyed, or if just the pigs were destroyed and the demons were just homeless. I don't know that it really matters at this point which one of those applies. However, the death of the pigs is proof that the demons had left the men as they were commanded by Jesus. Because that was the reason they ran down the hill and fell into the sea. Mark and Luke's version continues on with this story and tells us about this man, one of these men, having been freed from the demons, wanted to join Jesus and follow him. But Jesus tells him no, that he is to to stay and tell people about what God had done for him. Matthew seems to be more interested in telling about what the impression left on the local people were by Jesus' authority. We're told that the herdsmen were witnesses to this event. When the pigs rushed off the cliff, they fled and went to the nearby city and told all that they had seen and all that had happened. In verse 34, it says, All the the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Interesting response in some ways. 
Now, one thought is that Jesus, that they were asking Jesus to leave because they were concerned about the financial loss that having Jesus in the area is, is having on them. More likely, it is because they are ungodly people who are frightened by God's display of spiritual power. And they're asking him to please leave. If you're unconverted today, if you're not a believer, you are in the kingdom of darkness and Satan and his demons desire to keep you there permanently. Only Jesus Christ can redeem you. And when he saves a person, he delivers them from the kingdom of darkness and places them into the kingdom of God. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Jesus Christ has been highly exalted by the Father and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall, shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of of the devil. While Jesus, when Jesus returns, he will complete the work that he has started by redeeming the world and universe. That's why we hear, and I, and, and, and I was actually confused about this a, a number of years ago about what will take place when he returns and how the old earth and the old heavens will be destroyed and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. You'll be without sin, without depravity, without sickness, without crime, without all the things that we deal with today in this world. When Jesus Christ returns, he will complete the work of redeeming the universe and world from the power of the darkness, kingdom of darkness, and Satan and his demons will be judged and punished. Don't be one of those who will be judged alongside of Satan. Come to Jesus today. All of us who are believers here today, just so this doesn't sound like it's uh, something that we have to deal with with demons and not sure just uh, what we can do with them, uh, you don't have to fear Satan and his demons if you're a believer. You should respect them, yes, but not fear them. They are real. They are powerful. They can clutter things up in your life. If they're allowed to do that, you don't have to fear them. They're under the control of God and can only do what He allows them to do. Their abilities are limited by God. Your salvation is secure. If you're a believer, Satan and demons can't take that salvation from you. They can't snatch you away from God once God saves you. It's permanent. You are His eternally. Satan and his demons are defeated foes. And it helps to look at them that way. To understand that they are limited. That Jesus has already broken the bonds that 
Satan and the demons had on you as a believer. They don't have the control on you like they used to. And their judgment was pronounced in heaven in the past. It was confirmed in Eden, the beginning of our time, and secured at Calvary. They're defeated. They're just waiting their day of judgment. And one day, that judgment will be executed. So don't fear them. We're told to resist Satan in James chapter 4. We do this by submitting ourselves to the Lord and standing firm in the armor that God has given us. He's given us His Word and His Holy Spirit for a purpose. And we need to lean on that. That's why we encourage you to read your Scripture. That's why we encourage you to pray. That's why we encourage you to be among believers. It's because it gives you strength to be able to combat and resist Satan. So Jesus has the authority over demons. So don't fear them. Live in the manner of the calling that you have been called to if you're a believer. If you're an unbeliever, I would ask you and encourage you, come see me towards the end of the service or after the service and talk to us. Let me share Christ with you. Don't be one of those who, whose eternity has already been decided and is sure to die and be punished with Satan and his demons. So as we conclude, we uh, typically celebrate communion together. This will be a time we do that. This is, again, as we share communion, there's different things that it reflects to us. It's, it's a, a picture, a symbol for us to be able to reflect back on what Jesus has done for us, saving us. It's a picture of what He is doing for us even now in our lives, our day-to-day. And it's a symbol of His coming back for us, His promise that He will return. We look forward to that day. So as ushers come and pass the elements, we ask you to hold it. We'll participate uh, together. And worship team, if you'll come up. Spirit within 
cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Just to have a big mirror up here that reflects from the back and <laughs> I'll have to go back and forth. So Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians that he had received uh, this ordinance from Jesus in these words. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's celebrate together. The same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this, the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It's the day we look forward to. Thank you for your attention today. I'll close in prayer in a moment and then we'll have a song. And in the back we have some refreshments if you have time to stay with us for a little bit. If you are one who wants to, to find out what it is to Believe in Jesus. I encourage you to come and grab me before you leave. Don't leave today without knowing for sure. And if uh, you might be a believer who is struggling with some things and is not sure how to 
overcome that particular situation, come up and talk with me. We'll, we'll either get you help or we'll connect you with one of the other elders or one of the ladies, if it's a lady, to, to help, uh, help you through some of that. But we love you. We want to see you grow. We want to see you spiritually mature. We want to see you serving Christ. We want to see you serving Christ here. Father, we thank You for this time that we've been able to be together. We thank You for Your Word that You have given us. For these these stories and incidences and events that have been documented in the pages of Scripture for us of, of Jesus interacting with humans and, and even, in this case, demons. The supernatural world. And and what you show us through these scriptures, that Jesus is God, and that he has the power over the supernatural world, that he has the power over nature, over disease, over all the things that we've been teaching on these last weeks. We thank you that we have the confidence that our Savior is that type of a God, that we can lean on, that we can trust to help us through situations that gives us the power to be able to resist Satan when he tries to interfere in our lives. We pray that you'll be with us this week, Father, as we go about our responsibilities. We pray that you'll help us to remember whose children we are and that we'll live in a way and, and uh, that is pleasing to you. Help keep us from temptation. Help keep us from sin. We pray that you continue your work of sanctification in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.